Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Kenneth Tanner. Kenneth is a pastor of Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He writes for numerous websites and magazines, including the Huffington Post and Sojourners. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Man, great to great to be with you, Scott, as always. We were just remarking that I don't ever recall when Advent, you, or nearer to you, when Advent 4 is on Christmas Eve. So really, there's no lag time. That last Sunday in Advent gives way to Christmas Day. In the morning, it's Advent. In the evening, it's Christmas. It's, uh, it's rocking our world. And interesting readings, right? Our first reading is from 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 11 and verse 16. And here we've got David kind of, he's got, as this text says, rest from his enemies all around him. Says to Nathan, see now, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. And and Nathan says, can go, do everything you have in mind, you know, for the Lord is with you. And then the Lord kind of rebukes Nathan, you know, or comes, or at least comes to Nathan. And I think this is the longest speech since Sinai, I think. Something like that. It's a long one. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Where, uh, you know, it goes to tell David, are you the one to build me a house to live in? Yeah. You know, he it, it, it doesn't sound like God's really interested um, in David building a house for him. And, uh, I mean, I read the... The statement was, you know, do, do you remember me telling any of the elders of the house of Israel who are shepherding my people that I need to be moved out of a tent into a house of cedar? Um, you don't recall me ever asking anyone to do that. And so, um, and, and then he kind of turns the whole thing around and says, I'm going to build a house for you. Right, right. It's funny because um, Peter Lightheart has this introduction to the Old Testament and it's called A House for My Name. Um so, and you know, but the idea is, right, like the Lord will build the house and any building we do is in response, right? Like we don't, like the Lord builds the house uh, and any kind of things we do are a response to the building, not the building itself. Yeah. And if he doesn't build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So, um, and, and, uh, and, and that kind of ties in a little bit, right, with uh, destroy this house and I will rebuild it in three days. Um, you know, he, he, he does build a house for himself, um, in humanity in the womb of the Virgin. And, um, and, 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 uh, of course, Nathan and David, probably no one in the old Testament understood what he meant when he said that he was going to establish David's throne, um, in one of his ancestors, or excuse me, one of his, uh, progeny. And, um, you know, and, but he does build a house for himself and it's a house of flesh. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that about the house being, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise again in three days. Rob Bell had a great podcast called The Sign of Jonah, and he was talking about how, you know, when these people kind of push Jesus for a sign, really show us your stuff, show us that 
something that would make us believe you, like, you know, kind of baiting Jesus' ego, make him defend his own mission, that he says, this is the only sign, man, like me being thrown into the sea. Like me, you know, it, it, it's the sign of the cross in some ways, right? Like and a cruciform sort of refusal to produce a sign. It's almost like David wants to produce a sign unprovoked. Like, hey, man, I beat my enemies. We need to commemorate this. You know, like it, it seems a little bit like ego. Yeah, it's interesting. Peter, Lar- Peter Lightheart in his little commentary, which is fantastic. If you've, if you've never read A Son to Me, an, ex- an exposition in First and Second Samuel. It's so good. Yeah. He says, no one could rise higher th- than this. David was quite literally at the top of the world, the Adamic son of God through whom God would work out his plan for humanity. But the higher David rose, the more spectacular was his fall. In contrast to the true David, the second Adam, where it seems like the lower he goes, it's only by him going to the lowest that he and all of humanity, with you know, all the redeemed with him are exalted. Yeah, all, all, all rebuild it. And then, of course, the, the only way we're all, you know, um, contained within that rebuilt building is uh, his cross resurrection. And uh so yeah, it is the way of it, it, it is the way of humility, and uh, this is something that I you know I go back to a lot, which is um, you know the whole thing is a story of of God showing us um, that it is precisely a humility that causes everything to exist and uh, that holds everything in life and. Uh, and, and not not a um, not power uh, or displays of power or, or signs as we think uh, of showing might, um, but it's actually we we have a God who serves His creation, and the ultimate um, you know the ultimate icon of that is this uh, human that comes amongst us and uh, and and shows us what God's really like, shows us the Father. I and the Father are one. Uh, he never sh- says anything his father's not doing. He never, he, he doesn't, excuse me, he never says anything his father doesn't say. He never does anything that his father doesn't, d- doesn't do. And, and, uh, so every word and action, uh, of Christ in the Gospels is a revelation of the hidden life that he shares forever with the Father and, and, and Spirit. And, and that, that life is one of humble service to, toward everything. Let's go on to Romans 16, 25 through 27, which is our epistle text, which is a short one. I mean, you could, if you're, if you're, if you're a gifted lector, you could just do this from memory. I mean, this is the closing out of Romans, where I'll just read the whole thing in its entirety because it's so short. Now to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And Paul's, I guess, Greek teacher would say, run on sentence. At least an English teacher would say that. (laughs) There are a lot of clauses there that seem to dangle and hang and, and go all over the place. So... Yeah. Yeah, and he brings in the hiddenness of the the message from Ephesians. Um and uh yeah. 
It's powerful. Um, the mystery of of God um, come amongst us in in the flesh um, to redeem to redeem not just the Jews but uh, the the world. Uh, yeah, I've I've loved reading um, you know David Bentley Hart's translation of uh, these letters and uh, yeah it, it, this this uh, this Paul is someone who's very very passionate. And that really comes through in that translation. Yeah, and you get this sense that you that this was made secret, that there were things hidden. Like David, I mean, on one on one level, you look at David, and he knows a lot, right? Like he stands on the shoulders of of prophetic giants and 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 prophets, you know, and, and the history of Israel. And yet, this promise to David, David has no idea his kingdom's going to be ripped apart. That that. In exile, people will just, you know, after Israel's taken to the Babylonian captivity, that, that people will hope for some, there's no more Davidic kings, and people just hope for some little root from a little, a little branch that'll spring up and create a sapling or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, if anybody still believes, it's by faith and not by sight. All the, no, there's no way David foresees that his seed will rule from the cross and be a king with scars. Uh, even after he comes back from the debt, no, not not a chance. And uh, it, the the words of the words of God to Nathan, um, you know, in a literal sense, don't come true. In fact, the the, the they're in, they're routed by their enemies many times. There's several defeats. No one has a permanent throne, and um, uh, it's you know it, it's only it's it's only true on the other side of great affliction and um and, and seeming abandonment um by god yeah and i love that i love the sense that this that there's this history here that despite the fact that it doesn't look as though god is working that that providence goes on and mysteriously i was this article i tweeted out uh, a couple days ago from it was a reprint from first things that something Timothy George had written a couple of years ago called Bonhoeffer and Advent. And he was talking about Bonhoeffer returning back. I mean, people like, you know, he could have stayed in, in, in the United States, he was at Union Seminary, went back to Germany, which ultimately led to his imprisonment and execution. And George says he could have escaped all this. He knew had he remained safely in America in the summer of 1939, but he had no regrets. On one occasion, he heard someone say that the last several years of his life had been lost for him because of the war. Bonhoeffer, however, found a reason to think otherwise in the biblical text. Ecclesiastes 3.5, the NRSV renders it, God seeks out what has gone by, or God will call past to, to call the past to account in the NIV. Bonhoeffer interpreted this to mean that nothing of the past is lost, that God, precisely because he is God, seeks out the past that belongs to us in order to reclaim it. His beloved Gerhardt made a similar point in one of his hymns in which the Lord says, whatever fails you, I will restore it all. So what does that mean? I will restore it all. Bonhoeffer asked and then answered, nothing is lost. In Christ, all things are taken up, preserved. Christ brings all of this back indeed as God intended. Yeah, I love that. There, and and I, I think sometimes we... Um our expectations of what is is lost um, that there are things that aren't recoverable and I, I it it seems to me you know resurrection um, I think it's Nietzsche who said um, there's no no resurrection is needed until there's a tomb um, and uh, this is the great this is a great miracle 
um, that God does bring back to life um, all things. Um, uh, you know, it goes back to um, our, our good friend Robert Jensen in the Ezekiel passage and, and the interviews you guys did and um, uh, the work that he did in that, in that final book uh, at Princeton. Um, this is the whole house of Israel. I have, I am going to raise you up, you, plural, and bring you back. And when I do that, you're going to, um, know that I'm God, um, because I brought you back, um, and have restored all things. So, yeah, powerful. Yeah. And especially for people who, I mean, for many people, the holidays is, a dark time uh, for some anxiety about the future, you know, whether it's financial, relational, you know, or concern about loves, loved ones. But for many, right, it's also about regret and the past. And part of the gospel is not just a future hope, but a future hope that includes a healing, even if we can't see God's own work in that in the past. Anybody really wants to understand Advent, I don't know anyone that's better on it than Bonhoeffer. There, there's that collection of... Um, of pieces, most out of mostly out of the ethics, because those Lutheran Germans were really into Advent, and um, he really understood it well. And that devotional that um, that uh, John Knox, I think it is, or I'm not sure who, put puts out um, uh, is just superb. I mean, um, Bonhoeffer's work on the Incarnation um, is unbelievable. I love it. Yeah, I, I'd say, and it's interesting, a good concluding thought, too, because... I think it's Westminster John Knox. That, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, of his uh, mostly prison pieces about about Advent, um, and they're just extraordinary. It, and the insight in them is just, I've never seen anything like it before. So It's interesting, to the end of here, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Um you know, N.T. Wright says that uh, Paul puts uh, theological sensibility over kind of grammar because it's weird. Who is to whom the, the to whom be referred to? The only wise God through Jesus Christ who gets the and so I mean it, it seems like you know N.T. Wright says that that um, if you put that question to Paul, who does the to whom refer God or Jesus Christ? He supposes that Paul's answer would be yes. <laughs> that of course is the meaning of Amen. So you've got this embryonic incarnational theology in in the awkward grammar <laughs> that's i think the only way to see it it starts, it starts in the garden Speaking of the incarnation, let's move on to the gospel. Um, Luke 1, 26 through 38. Here we have the, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God. Now, I think this is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy um, to tell Mary that she would bear this amazing child and it would be the Christ child. And um, yeah, this is, you know, the Annunciation passage, which is probably... Uh, I would guess most people will focus in on this, don't you think? Oh, for sure. I mean, the the Samuel passage is difficult. The the Romans passage is short, and you know, yeah, it's uh, plus it's Christmas Eve, so um, and some people may not be having you know that, that their Advent four may be their only service that day, but yeah, I would imagine so. It's one of my favorite passages. 
Why is it one of your favorites? Uh, well, I, I was going to tell you to start out because it seemed like um, humor is an important part of you and, and the kind of shows <laughs> that you do. But I love this uh, Mary Freaking New um, version of that, you know, Mary, did you know? And, and it's basically it's like an anti-mansplaining version. Of- totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, Mary probably knew that all these things were happening because like the angel showed up and told her. And then, you know, she had her speech with Elizabeth where she understands, seems to understand all that's going on with her. And she was a powerful young woman. And, um, so, uh, anyway, that, I, that was, I think that's funny. Um, I, that's not a big, I'm not a big fan of that particular song. And, uh, I love finding that this year, but, uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's wonderful. I mean, Jesus, you know, the, the whole, the whole God, father, son, and spirit invite this woman, um, into their plan. Um, to redeem the world. And she says, yes, I, I think consent is very important. I've, I run into people who don't think she consented to this. I think that's ridiculous. And um, I I think she's strong. I think there's a reason that God um, calls her out. And that's, that's uh, part of that comes out in the Magnificat. Um, you know, she, she's someone who really does understand the story of God with his people. And, um, there's a reason God chose her. Um, she's not, uh, meek and mild as it were. Um, she's definitely, um, has a point of view and brings it, um, brings it up. Um, it was interesting to me. I, I ran into, um, I think it's Fortress that published a, a book and I'm, I, I, I haven't read it yet, but, um, I was introduced to um, it by uh, Trip Fuller. He had a, a short article um, in one of the in his excellent Advent series, out by a man who is proposing that that um, that it was the sexual congress between Joseph and Mary that brought about um, the birth of Christ. Um, and I, I find that intriguing. He's doing it for a couple of reasons. He's concerned about the the history of the church's uh, kind of standoffishness about cr- the goodness of created sexuality he thinks that that the Marian story is kind of um, I don't know uh, supported a kind of Manichaean reading of human sexuality and of the flesh and of the material world um, and uh, that you know there's nothing wrong with human sexuality which is of course all true but it's at great cost I mean it it it, you know, uh, and he's also trying to, you know, say, you know, bring in the humanity of Jesus, but it's a great cost. I, I think it's, um, this is about a powerful woman who God um, has a conversation with, and then she consents to his plan. And then God, there's no male sexuality at the center of this. This is a woman um, responding to the initiative of God and God's work in, in bringing the the son into her womb uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's funny to me that people who, especially in, a, in an age of, of, of a, lot, a lot of, a lot of, well, then and now of male sexual abuse and the degradation of women, that you would bring male sexuality back into the center of a story that doesn't belong in. I couldn't agree more. I think Bart talks about this in Church Dogmatics 1 2 on the stuff in the Mystery of Christmas. And he talks about how male sexuality, which is usually will to power, is taken out of here. And, and also, even 
I, I want to, you know, if you could look at this, there's lots of similarities with birth stories like um, Ishmael, Isaac, Samson, even Elizabeth, right? Like where um, you have an announcement of imminent birth, the name of the child to be born, insights into the child's future. And and these are extraordinary births. But but the thing is, even the women here want a child because their childlessness takes away from their social status. And in God granting it, kind of, it, it doesn't problematize their lives. It, 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 it's a real blessing. Here, Mary says yes to a child she didn't pray for. And it will problematize her life to explain. I mean, I, I can't th- imagine how many times she heard the snickering about the little bastard Jesus running around, you know, in, in this place, Nazareth, where nothing good can come from. <laughs> yeah. No, it, no one believed that that the child she had was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She she lived under a cloud um, and Jesus lived under a calendar scandal uh, their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting too because um, you know this this is going to be a vocation that will continue to scandalize, right? She will actually, I mean, she embraces this child's mission, but a sword will pierce her own soul too. She's going to hear her son say that his mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God, right, and receive it. Um, Mary, Mary does that right uh, early in the story, you know, early in the story of Luke. And yet, even it's probably even a scandal to her, the one who who heard the word, received it, and and, and does consent, and, and, you know, to be the God bearer. But even she uh, must continue to become a disciple. Mm-hmm. She gets to be, and 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 I think the the first Christians were really beautiful about all these things. She's the first one to bear God. She she's the prototype of all Christians and. Um, the, 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 in terms of discipleship, she's the first one to bear Jesus, the one who cannot be contained, um, who is one with the father, who, the, whom the father spoke all things into being, uh, is contained in her womb for, um, he cannot be contained is contained. Um, there's a lot, there's a tremendous beauty here. And, um, of course, I, I, you know, I think it's an important thing to recognize that this is the only way both sexes could participate um, in the renewal and restoration of the world is for a woman uh, to bear a man. Um, and uh, so, you know, this idea that, this, that, that she is a, a second Eve to Christ's um, uh, second Adam. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's a great – and, you know um, – I, I do believe that that uh, especially the Orthodox Church, but um, we we have devalued um, a Mary uh, too often in our Protestant churches and um, not understood the role of Mary. I think it's affected the way we view women, um, and uh, I think it's uh, bled over into to some of our cultural responses. And uh, this is a powerful woman. And um, and she's right at the center of bringing all things back into um, all things back to God. Yeah, yeah, and I think there is some in some circles of the church, and we understand this. Like, there's scandal. At, at, well, you know, why do we call God Father and, and, and it, it, patriarchal objections? To that, but it really, I mean, the scandal I think worth reflecting on is not that the New Testament doesn't. We don't find God really called Mother. Although there are certain internal images in both testaments, but the real scandal is that God deemed to have a mother. Um, yeah, and that—that's where the real humanity is. 
Well, Ken, blessings in your preaching. Amen. On you too. Are you preaching? Wait, are you preaching this weekend? I'm not. I'm preaching next week, though. Are you? Okay. All right, brother. It's so good to be with you as always. Uh, And also with you. Everybody preach the heck out of this weekend. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Ken for being on the podcast and thank you again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.